Hello, I'm Jennifer Thompson. And I'm Chad Thompson. And we are your hosts of The The Premise, Premise. where we get to the story behind the storyteller. And this season four, that's right, we're in season four. We've got some amazing storytellers lined up, and we really appreciate you listening. Be sure to subscribe and rate us wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening. Let's roll. Autobots, roll out. Hello and welcome to The Premise. So, Chad, today we are here with Deborah Holt-Larkin. Hello, Debbie. Hi. You don't mind if I call you Debbie, do you? Absolutely, I'm not. I'd like you to call me Debbie. Okay, good. In the, in the book, you're Debbie, so I've come to, you know, Correct. come to know you as Debbie. <laughs> but I would like to read to our listeners your bio, and then we'll dive right in. Oh, hi, Chad. You didn't say hi. Oh, hi. Oh, there he is. We're back again. (laughs) We're back. All right, friends. Deborah Holt Larkin holds a bachelor's degree in American history and literature from the University of California at Davis, and she studied creative writing at the University of California at San Diego. She has a master's degree in the education of exceptional children from San Francisco State University. She spent more than three decades teaching students with special needs before becoming an elementary school principal. And today we are going to talk to Debbie about this fantastic book that I'm holding in my hand. It's a very thick book called A Lovely Girl, The Tragedy of Olga Duncan and the Trial of One of California's Most Notorious Killers. So again, Debbie, welcome to the premise. Thank you. Thank you very much for inviting me. You know, this book, I just have to tell our listeners has been absolutely fantastic. It's it's impressive because it's two it's two books. It's a memoir written in the first person, first narrative, and it's hysterical. I mean, I laughed out loud a lot. Chad can it's attest to that. It's a murder story. I know, right? Chad's <laughs> like, what is so funny? And then the other side is the crime, the true crime that's written from the omniscient third person. But you you do such a good job of balancing what is really a horrific, gruesome crime. And this, what I, I almost picture your family as like a sitcom, like a, like a Lucille Ball-esque sitcom. It's <laughs> frankly hysterical. Really well done. Well, I'm glad you enjoyed it. (laughs) Your father in particular is quite a character. I love how you bring him to life, his general attitude about life, about religion, his attempt at being a handyman, which really brings levity to many of the chapters and made me laugh. Uh, His manner of speech in particular was so well done. And I love how when he's when he's speaking, he uses, you know, huge words and concepts that you, the 10-year-old narrator, don't quite understand as a child. As a reader, we see him clearly, though. Was that, was that easy to do? Did your, did your father come to, care, come to life very quickly? Or did you have to kind of go back and work at it to bring his personality forth like that? Well, people do ask me that, and the answer is, uh, I hear his voice. Mm. Um, my dad was, you're right, he was a character, he was very dynamic, and uh, I do still, I can still hear his voice in my head. But part of that, I was able to bring that back is not only was he a newspaper reporter who uh, covered this, this uh, horrific crime, he also wrote 
uh, a weekly column that was, mm. you know, kind of like uh, if you're any of your readers uh, uh, know of Irma Bombeck was, or maybe Dave Barry. That's exactly <clears throat> what it made me think yeah. of. Was, yeah. Right. In fact, sometimes people used to ask me, you know, what's your book about, you know, real fast. I used to say, well, it's uh, uh, Dave Barry meets Anne Rule in Fargo. <laughs> um, because it was, you know, kind of yeah. those th- those three things. Um, but anyway, my father uh, sl- saved many of his uh, old newspaper columns, and quite a few of them were about the family. They really that was on all kinds of subjects, but there were quite a few about the family. And he had them in this. Uh, by the time um, he was older, he had them in this black trash bag in his uh, home office, and he would just, you know cut clippings out and put them in there. So when he passed away, I asked my mother if I could have that bag. And so when mm. I read uh, those old columns that, you know, reminded me of things that went on in our life, mm. I really, I, I could hear him again. So that was part of why I was able to do that. Well, that makes sense. It's so well done. I, I kept thinking to myself, how did she capture this so perfectly? Yeah. And I yeah. knew you must have had some clippings because... At a, I think at one point you, we actually get to hear some of the clippings right. and there's one in particular oh my gosh there's so much I want to talk to you about <laughs> we, we're going to be here oh, a good. while folks there's this one where your sister Betsy who is also hysterical her her personality is. is so great I want to know what she does for a living has she read the book did she approve I have lots of questions Okay. <laughs> but she wanted mousetraps. And so he wrote this right. piece about, you know, the mousetraps. So d- tell our readers about this. And, and don't worry, our readers, listeners, we will get back to the true crime part. Tell us about this mousetrap situation. Well, uh, my dad, as you mentioned, he was always doing these handyman projects at mm-hmm. home on the weekend. And there was a, a store nearby it was kind of an old Western store, but a farm store, but it had all, uh, everything you could ever think of that you would want to buy was there. So he would go there on the weekend to get something to help him with his project. And we would frequently want to go along. And we were there and, and Betsy just, she insisted that she wanted to get these mouse traps. At first, I think she wanted this really big ones. And then uh, he finally talked her into, you know, a package of three. And Betsy was... Um, very always interested in mechanical things mm. where my father if, if anybody had given her a little bit of instruction she probably could have done the handyman um, things around the house when she got a little older so she um and, and and it was different than you know they didn't it didn't seem like they were watching what we were doing all that much so we got home and she went in the refrigerator loaded them up with cheese and put them all around the house you and know it- hoping that she could catch a mouse <laughs> But instead, she caught your father. Right. Because then once he talked to her, he said, you know, you got to bring him out. And then we're playing with him. And uh, one of us asked, do you think you could, uh, I don't know, what was it, trip the trap without getting your finger caught? And so he takes on the dare and no, of course he got he does. his finger caught. Mm-hmm. He was not one to, to stand down a challenge. No. no. Well, <laughs> you know, in the the... The way that you write this book, there's so much tension. There's tension in the family side, and there's tension in the true crime side of it. That's that's really well done. 
And I wanted to ask you about that tension. In fact, there's one point in the book where I'm thinking to myself, oh, my God, I hope she doesn't get away with it, you know, the murderer. And then I'm like, oh, wait, I know the ending. (laughs) (laughs) You know, that's interesting, because one of the people that my friends that I write about, Judy, Mm -hmm. um, in Judy in the in the book, the one that went to the churches with me and fishing, um, I asked her to read the book early before, you know, it got published in case there was anything in there, um, you know, that she would object to that I wrote about her. And uh, she said the same thing to me. She says, you know, when I got to the end of the trial, I'm starting to get to be really worried that Nervous, even though yeah. I know the whole story. Yeah. <laughs> I <laughs> so mean, I'm glad you felt that. <laughs> that's impressive. Yeah. You really captured the tension of the trial and brought us through like it was so well done. I, I want to get to the research eventually, but let's pause a moment okay. and tell our readers really what this book is about you know, who okay. is this lovely girl and and tell tell us about this true crime. Okay. Now can I say one thing about the tension? Because I know some of your audience may be writers themselves. Absolutely. Please um, do. So uh first I had somebody read it who uh was an editor and he recommended that, you know, maybe I cut some of the family chapters a little because it maybe was slowing down the chapters of the crime. And so, you know, I didn't really pay attention to that suggestion he made because I just wanted a lot of those family chapters in there. But then when I first, uh, when an agent was first interested in my book and she read the manuscript and she said, you know, I'm up in the air a little bit on this, but she said, I feel like as the book progresses, especially once you get into the trial, that uh, the family chapters are slowing the tension uh, of, of of the trial and 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 it's uh, to move along quickly. Mm. And she said, "If you're willing to rewrite that, then I'll take a look at it again." Mm-hmm. And so when I read it, I said, "Okay, I get this." Because sometimes when I'm reading a book, I think, "Oh, you know, come on, let's move on. I want to know what's." And so that's what I did. I uh, did uh, cut a couple of chapters. The, the, I call the family chapters. I did cut a couple of them. I combined a couple of them. Mm. And so you notice as you read the book, once you get to the trial, that it's not just every other chapter. Yeah, it's, I did notice that. You know, a, a couple of chapters, it might be a number of chapters. So yeah, I consciously tried to, to ramp that up for the um, for the reader uh, once we got to the trial. Ramp Interesting. Up, ramp, ramp up the trial. Yeah. You know, I did notice, I did notice that. And I, but I was so caught up and, you know, captured by this, frankly, gr- this crazy true crime. I mean, this trial and it's yeah, so it much about it is like you can't make this stuff up. Um, you know, exactly. I, I know in the inside flap, it describes it as, you know, straight out of a Greek tragedy. And boy, they ain't kidding. <laughs> yeah, right. Um, and it just it keeps getting more and more. So like as the as we go on in the trial and we find out more and more and more, you know, it's unfolding in a way that it's just um, it's perfect. I mean, did right. you ever think to yourself? I mean, I want to say this as a writer, like how lucky am I that this is so crazy It's going to make such a good <laughs> book? <laughs> right. Well, 
Well, I didn't exactly think about it that way. Well, I did actually when I when I was reading the transcripts for the trial mm. that everybody testimony testified, and you know you could hear their voice, and mm. and and I would say when my reading critique writing group that I would go to. I said, some of these people are just writing my dialogue for me. Right. <laughs> All I have to do is cut things down a little bit. But one of the things that I did uh, believe, because it took me nine years to write the mm. book, and sometimes I would talk about it with friends or just briefly tell them the crime. And I don't think I ever told uh, a, just a brief synopsis of that story to people without people being super interested in it. Mm. So I felt like that I had a, I had a story to tell. It had stuck with me all of these years, you know, since I was 10 years old. You know, it stuck with me for 50 years and more, that I, I, this story yeah. and, and Olga's tragedy. And so, tell yeah, I, I felt like I had, I, had, um, I, I had a story that people might want to read if I could just get it down on paper, right? <laughs> well, and, and you did, and you did it well. So tell us, what is this tell book us. about? Yeah, give us the synopsis. Okay. Okay. Well, um, Olga Duncan uh, was a seven months pregnant nurse in Santa Barbara, and she was married to an up and coming criminal defense attorney uh, by the name of Frank Duncan. And and Frank wasn't living full time with Olga at the time she disappeared uh, because Frank was having problems with his mother, uh, Elizabeth Duncan, and she had threatened to kill herself um, if he didn't move back home and live with her. So Frank, dutiful son that he was, he moved back with mom, and uh, but he still went over to visit Olga uh, sometimes. And, his and wife. Went over in, in the evenings. His <laughs> wife, right. excuse me. Yes, his <laughs> wife. He went over and visited her. And they'd only, they got married in June of 1958, and she disappeared in November of 1958. And uh, they would only, you know, he, he started immediately back and forth between mom and, and Olga um, within a, you know, a few days of the marriage. Uh, but the night Olga was uh, disappeared, Frank was home with his mother. And that night she'd invited, invited two of her nurse friends um, over to um, what they said in the trial was hot buns and coffee that night. And she was showing Emma off some of the baby clothes that she'd made for her unborn child. She was seven months pregnant. And, um, the friends left at 11.10, and uh, Olga Duncan was never seen alive again. Mm. So her brutally beaten body was found a month later uh, yeah. in a, just a little shallow grave off a lonely road in Ventura County. And I will say that right now that Olga lived in, in Santa Barbara. Frank lived in Santa Barbara's mother. It was Santa Barbara. But when her body was found, it was found just a couple of miles across the county line into Ventura County, which is where I lived and where my father was a newspaper reporter. So it became a Ventura crime mm -hmm. um, because uh, she was killed at the gravesite. So right. anyway, yeah. um, the, the, the true crime part or the family part came from that. Um, I was just, uh, her, her disappearance was a pivotal moment for me. That's, that's how I describe it. Um, it was the first time I realized that, you know, life was really dangerous and that our safety wasn't guaranteed. And I was already a kind of an anxious girl to begin with. Um, but the mystery at first of what had happened to Olga, you know, it scared me and it fascinated me. Um, 
At the same time, I was safe in my home, my little bit of a crazy family, but still a very loving family. And so while um, uh, this crime and the, the mystery was unfolding, I was reading my father's articles. He was the reporter who covered the case. He was writing the articles that were headline articles in the newspaper. Um, and uh, I was uh, a kind of a little bit proco- uh, precocious about precocious reading. Sure. At the, uh, <laughs> yeah. But I was, I was uh, the daughter of a newspaper reporter. Hmm. And the, we had newspapers all over the place. It wasn't just the, the paper he worked for. He took the LA Times. He brought in other papers. So, uh, and also, I was kind of interested in whatever my father was interested in. I was very much a daddy's girl, and mm. uh, so I read. I read the paper. I read his columns too. Yeah. And um, so, uh, you know, I want to so ask you something about that. Yeah, though, go real ahead. Quick. So, sure. Th- the thing that I find really fascinating about your father is, like, on the one hand, he's saying, "Debbie, don't worry about it." This doesn't concern yeah. you. Like, he knows this is not a topic for a 10-year-old girl. Exactly. But by the same token, you ask these very adult questions. You do your own research. Mm-hmm. It's almost like from behind the scenes, you're pulling these newspapers out of the waste bin. You know, you're searching <laughs> for answers. And then you're asking very yeah. grown-up questions. And he says at first, he tries to wave you off, usually while he's trying to do something poorly, like, you know, right. put in a uh, garbage disposal. <laughs> but, right. but then he answers your questions in a very adult-like way and I wonder if in some ways maybe he wasn't proud of your curiosity that he really saw himself in you yeah you know I I I don't know about that I know he was proud of me I'm not sure about for that reason but um he he couldn't help himself talking about it you know (laughs) because he did he always he he couldn't he couldn't he was a big talker but (laughs) he always talked to us um as an adult, as if we were adults, mm. uh, in many ways, I always used to say, you know, those standardized tests they used to give us when we were in school vocabulary. Mm. Boy, did I ever ace those! I because bet. <laughs> I had had such a, a, a high level of vocabulary. I was exposed to that, uh, you know, from a very young, as a very young child. And he talked to us about all kinds of different grown-up ideas that you know, work mm-hmm. that I didn't put in the book, but um, political kinds of things. And so, yes, um, you know, he, he did. Go ahead. He, he did. Uh, and, and I think I said this. I don't know if I actually said it in the book. I've said it in other things that I've written about it. Uh, my dad didn't have a, a, a filter, really. Mm-hmm. He he just really said the kind of the things he he thought. And, and after I wrote this book and it was published, I got a. Uh, uh, contacted by one of his former colleagues at the newspaper, and he w- this man was a young man at the end of my father's career. But he said to me, "You know, you really got your dad right. Mm. He never had. He didn't have a filter. We never knew what he was going to say in the newsroom." Yeah. So I felt good about that. Yeah, I really felt like he came to life in such an a beautiful way because he's such a kind man, and yet he's. He was. Like in so many ways, he's so silly, you know, like he's trying to do things that, that never work out, you know, from trying to jump the car using bumper cables, jumper cables rather, and trying to install the, um, <laughs> the garbage disposal. disposal and, your, yeah. and your mother is very, she's so calm. She's this calming spirit. She's, uh, she, she, said, she was a saint. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good way to they describe were, her. 
they were a good match that she was so calm and he was so volatile. And uh, so th- they were uh, a-, a good combination. Mm. Um, but uh, anyway, I, for- I lost my train of thought. I forgot what your question was. Sorry. Well, actually, I wanted to go back to that vocabulary. One of the things that I okay. love so much about the writing is this little 10-year-old who is trying to figure out big concepts. And you shared that with us. You know, you would say to your dad, what is this word demeanor? What does this mean exactly? You know, and you're, you're working through the process. And you're giving away everything. So we know what's happening. But we also get that you don't get it. And that was what really well done. Did did it take quite a bit of editing to polish that? Or did that happen pretty easily for you in the writing process? I I belong to a a writing group at uh, San Diego Writers Inc., Oh, and yeah. I belong Wonderful to it plug for, there. from, yes. <laughs> and <laughs> I've, I've uh, belonged to that, I've, you know, weekly, uh, mm. bring in 10 pages. So uh, I got a lot of help uh, from that group and their feedback um, about, does this sound right? Mm. Um, you know, and. Uh, Is this believable? It, it was, yeah. It, yeah, it's believable. Sometimes I would be told it's not believable, but that was in the trial. And I have to say, well, I'm sorry, but that's what but really that's happened. What happened. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, uh, one of the things that um, that I have said, and I, I'm not exactly how, how I thought about how it all worked in, because it was kind of an unconscious process for me. But I was both an elementary teacher um, for, I think, about uh, 15 years. And then an administrator, and the last 15, I was an elementary school principal. So children and their voices and their mm. thoughts and the way they think about things was sort of the, um, you know, the, the soundtrack of my life sure. for many years. Yeah. So I have a pretty good sense, you know, just editing myself, if this sounds like what a child would say. And, um, you know, I wrote this in what they call the... Uh, creative nonfiction, narrative nonfiction, so that when you set up scenes, there are going to be, as long as you don't change the truth of the story about or what happened, that you will set up scenes where there's a little extraneous things that, you know, that you do just uh, create. And that scene, one of the scenes in the classroom where we're doing the sharing and everything, (laughs) and, um, you know, I, I, I knew exactly how to write those other children talking, really, mm. um, because I, I listened to their little voices all those years of my career. There's this one. So scene. when one of the little, the one little girl says it's a sharing and and uh, I think we're supposed to bring in um, something mm. about civic responsibility and it's Christmas time and and she's got this uh, uh a Lions Club group that's doing a nativity scene and the teacher says, well, how is, could this be civic? And she says, well, my mother says that the Lions Club is a civics organization. <laughs> and, you know, she, and, and, and kids just, you know, that's that kind of stuff they do all the time. They just kind of extrapolate that, yeah. uh, how, how they see the world. Ten-year-old Debbie brings in newspaper clippings and reads them to the class yeah. as part of show and tell. And the, the teacher is like, <laughs> she's trying to stop you. And there's this one scene where you're reading as fast as you can and you're sort of leaning away from her because she's right. trying to take the the clipping away from you. And I just I just got such a good sense of who, you know, 10-year-old Debbie is and this little girl yeah. who is so, you're so serious and yet, yet so the innocence really comes through. You were also seeking religion. You were looking for answers or comfort. 
And yes, I was. It plays a big part, and of course, must have really frustrated your father, who's an atheist. I believe he's an atheist. Right. Um, he was. Yeah. He he did gave us some religious training, um, but yes, I would say that that's what my grandmother said he was. Um, <laughs> oh, and but, the grandmother. Uh, oh, I love her. <laughs> <laughs> I immediately, um, you know, for the religion. I, I always felt like that my family was sort of seriously out of whack mm. with the rest of the neighborhood because mm-hmm. they all went to church um, and uh, we didn't. And so uh, I kind of thought that if the going to church would make us more normal. Mm. And then when Olga disappeared, I immediately went on high alert. Um, and uh, I was worried that uh maybe I couldn't count on God uh, for protection because we didn't go to church and uh, because my grandmother called my father an atheist. So I believe that um, going to church would uh, make us more 1950s normal and help uh, guarantee God's uh, protection from bad things happening. So I never was really um, deeply religious in this, I, I was looking at it as a way to find protection. Mm-hmm. And I knew my friends prayed to God for protection and, um, you know, to help that, them. Well, yeah, there must I be something to I thought I'd this. like to do that too. <laughs> yeah. And my, my parents. Yeah. Yes, exactly. <laughs> and so my parents were very laissez faire about these things. Mm-hmm. And uh, they said, uh, I, I think I asked my mother at one time. Uh, well, what did you think about that? I was going, Judy and I were going to all these different churches and she kind of shrugged and she said, well, we, we just thought that you would, um, you know, find your own spiritual path as you grew up. Yeah. So they, they didn't seem to have very many concerns about that. There's this but, one... Yeah, we, we, were, we were out of whack. You know, my father didn't have um, the same interest as the other fathers, you know, fishing or hunting mm-hmm. or poker night or those kinds of things even though I feel like that we were very well liked in the neighborhood, but we were just a little bit off, you know? Well, and that came through in the book too, you know, this idea that everyone knew that, you know, Bob is a character. Bob's going to do what Bob's going to do, but, you know, everyone loves Bob too. He's a great storyteller. He's entertaining. But, you know, God love Bob, you know, he's, He's going to need some help with the lawnmower. I'll send Gene <laughs> over right away. <laughs> right. Exactly. Have you, have you thought about this book as a movie? Well. Every author does, right? I, but I know. Um, I guess I can say this. I don't know. Uh, my, my agent is in, right in the middle right now of uh, negotiating film rights mm, I don't with think a you production can say company. This. <laughs> oh, oh! Well, well, when we'll is this going to be on? No, well, we'll <laughs> we're almost done. It is almost done. I won't say the name of it or the name of the company or anything. But yeah, anyway, yeah. Keep that so possibly, possibly, maybe you should edit it out. I don't know, but uh, possibly, <laughs> what they're oh, interested no. in is uh, uh, film rights to do uh, a limited streaming series. Oh, brilliant! So they're they want an option. So uh, knows, see, I was hoping for Coen Brothers to just. <laughs> Speaking oh, of Fargo. You know, I thought of them too. Yeah. <laughs> and honestly, yeah. like the wackiness of your family and just some of the things that were happening. And another thing that you did so well right out of the gate. I mean, honestly, I don't read true crime. I've never had a desire to read yeah. true crime. It's not my thing. But I was mm-hmm. just hooked from the beginning because of your family. And like you're at the 
dinner table and you're like your father's upset about something you know your mom's trying to be the peacekeeper betsy wants another biscuit you're stuffing sugar cubes into your mouth i mean there's like there's this beautiful <laughs> chaos that's kind of happening well it's and, chaotic <laughs> but when we sense that but in a very humorous way and i thought my god i cannot wait to see who plays these characters because it's just mm. so like i said it's like a sitcom it's very lucille ball-esque you know 1950s yeah. and and you did a great job of depicting 1950s, you know, or late, I should say, late 1950s yeah. Ventura. And, you know, that sleepy beach community that you grew up in. I really could yeah. felt like I was there. And I've been right. there. What so a paradise helpful. when I look back. Yeah, what a, right? a paradise when I look back, that small town right there next to the ocean. It's so beautiful. It was, yeah. it was great. And, you know, just but, uh, it's changed so much. Um, yeah. I, I did, I just, I could feel it, you know, I I could feel the air and, you know, the breeze coming in or, you know, it was really well done. When did you and decide, you, that, go ahead, go ahead. No, no, I was just going to say, if you go to the town and you look up on the hill, that courthouse mm -hmm. is still up it's there. Still it's there. still majestic and looking down, but it's now City Hall. Mm. So, uh, got it. It's, it's, but it's still there. No, go ahead. What were you going to ask me? Sorry. Well, when you said this book took you nine years to write, when did you decide did. that, you know what, I'm going to do this. I'm going to write this story. Well, um, at first, well, to go back a little bit, you know, I, I always thought that I wanted to be a writer. Um, and uh, when I went off to college and people would ask me, well, what do you want to do after college? I would never tell anybody that, that I wanted to be a writer because you know, it sort of seemed like such a lofty goal. And, um, and I ended up like a lot of women <clears throat> um, that graduated in the early 70s. <clears throat> I, I went into education, I became a teacher, uh, which I loved, I loved my career. But I never really gave up the thought of being a writer. Mm -hmm. So when my youngest son went away to college, I immediately started the classes at uh, UCSD in the creative writing. And I wanted to do something with this story, but I thought I would fictionalize it. And um, <clears throat> so I have a, a number of false starts with that, you know, first chapters of, of books that um, went nowhere because I think you said it earlier, this this story is stranger than fiction. Yeah. And uh, I realized that maybe, um, and maybe it was suggested to me that uh, uh, editors and publishers would not be wanting to to try to publish this as a fiction because it it was is too unbelievable. So um, then I thought <laughs> maybe great? I would. I just think that's yeah. so beautiful that it's like it has <laughs> to be nonfiction because otherwise they won't believe it if you make it fiction. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So then I thought, well, okay, I would write um, it more as a as just a straight true crime, a, a police procedural with a more journalistic. Uh, style of writing and everything. And, you know, I didn't really like so much what I was uh, writing, but um, I went to, I joined uh, San Diego Writers Inc. Um, I took some classes there first and then joined uh, a reading critique group. And so, you know, you bring in your 10 pages every week. And so sometimes I would bring in pages about my family and about my dad, the personal essays. And then other times I would bring out, bring in things about uh, the Duncan uh, case. And uh, I hadn't been in the group very long when I brought in a personal essay. And uh, I don't get to, the, I, I say that it happened, but 
the the time when my father when the uh, his lawnmower is a power lawnmower that he named after Mrs. Duncan uh, chopped off the ends of his two fingers because that <laughs> happens quite oh a my. few years after oh no and, and so oh, oh no. I have it in the epilogue it's in the epilogue <laughs> that that's what happened with well you're not supposed it. to yeah, tell just, us that uh, it's just a, just the tips oh <laughs> well anyway so I had um uh I, I had written brought this one in and uh so they knew that I was struggling on, on what to do. And the leader of the group, a man named Mark Clements said, know Mark. you know, Debbie, yeah. he's great. Yeah. Okay. Mark said, why don't you combine the two? Mm. You've written these personal essays about your family that are very entertaining. And we know your dad covered this murder trial. And then you have this story, this crazy story. Cause I had, um, you know, told him that what it was about. He said, why don't you combine that two? And I thought, I thought, you know what? I think I can do that. That's mm. a great idea. So I give credit. Yeah. Uh-huh. I, I give credit to Mark for whenever I comes up because he was the one that, that made that suggestion. It's such a lovely counterbalance, you know, to the crime. And then we get the levity of this, you know, yeah. precocious young lady and this gregarious man. And, you know, the family scenes are so good, as I've said. Let's talk about... The research. So there's, okay. you'd mentioned in the book, there's 4,000 pages of accumulated transcript. Tell five. us about, did you say five? Yeah. 5,000. <laughs> 5,000. Okay. Did you sit down and read all of that? And, and if yep. so, how in the world did you decide what to keep and what not to keep? Well, that was uh, difficult, and I had my book is long, but I even had more pages, and I I just had to um, you know just had to cut some of it. But I think I say in the note to uh, readers at the beginning mm -hmm. that the the dialogue or the you know the words from the the witnesses are um, you know come directly from the transcript, but I did have to edit uh, for clarity and uh, for for brevity. So in a transcript, the the, the um, DA or the attorney say, well, you know, what's your name? Did you live here? Did you, you know, so there's a lot of stuff that's uh, going back and forth and they might give a very short answer. He asked the next question, another short answer. So I combine the question and, and just put in, you know, just any way I could to, mm. to shorten it down a little bit. But I felt that I got in everything that was uh, important to the story. It certainly feels like you did. Yeah, I was very interested in the fact that in the beginning of the book, you did, in fact, you know, tell the reader that I've combined some characters. And, you know, mm -hmm. obviously, I don't remember all of the dialogue from my family. So some of it is, you know, based on what I remember to be true. But it, right. in making those decisions, like, for example, there were many detectives working on the case, but you created yeah. one character, which was brilliant. Right. And there are times when we get the inner thoughts of a detective or a Gustafson, the DA. And I'm just wondering, where did you get those ideas for their inner thoughts and like the, the little personal pieces that brought those characters to life? Well, uh, for one of the characters, Charlie Thompson, he mm -hmm. was real. But, huh? And so I was able to speak to his daughter. And oh, she wow. told me, wow, she told me, um, 
about, you know, after he got suspended about him going back to Chicago and what happened there and why he decided that he would stick with Santa Barbara. And the way I found out that he was suspended is when I was researching the old Santa Barbara newspapers, there was this little article, they don't do that anymore, mm-hmm. about, you know, Detective Charles Thompson was suspended for two weeks because he used profanity towards his boss, Lieutenant Pett. You know, it was right there in the newspaper. So <laughs> Again, I was a- able perfect. To, <laughs> yeah, I was able to ask his daughter about that and what she knew about it and everything. So I had some ideas of, of Charlie's personality. And she sent me some other things that had been written about her dad. Um, in the paper. So I had some ideas about Charlie. Uh, um, for um, the DA, Roy Gustafson, again, this was just, you know, dropped from the heavens for mm. me. I had access to his uh, unpublished memoir about oh. the Duncan case, wow. where he had in there... I can see where it didn't get published. It was sort of dry and everything, but uh-huh. he did ha- write about some of the things he thought about during the trial, uh, what he thought about witnesses, how he thought he had ruined his case. He was mm-hmm. afraid because he you know, brought out testimony that maybe wasn't really allowed. So, uh, and he had opinions about what he thought about Frank Duncan, what he thought about Elizabeth Duncan, mm-hmm. some of the things that he couldn't use about them because it wasn't admissible. Um, so that was just uh, really a, a, you know, a godsend. And also, this is also in the epilogue. Um, when in the in the mid sixties, nineteen sixties, the Ventura DA's office discovered that all of the Duncan transcripts were missing from all of the trial, and they would search and search, and they couldn't find it. Um, and uh, then on the, this is a so this is a, another piece of that puzzle. There was also a, a boy that was about two years older than me who was a, a paperboy delivery at that time of the Duncan case, and he was reading those headline stories as he folded the papers for delivery. And that's his name is Bob McSorley. And um, so now, fast forward uh, how many years? Forty years. And in the early 2000, he works for a law firm that was uh, founded by this DA, Roy Gustafson, after he left the district's attorney's office. So the law firm is closing down and Bob is in the law library. Um, He's an attorney in the law library, cleaning it out. And up on this top shelf, he finds these bound uh, transcripts (laughs) and uh, he opens them. Well, they're the Duncan transcripts. Oh, my God. And so he knows what they are because he was also fascinated as a child right. by the case. Yeah. And so he contacts the DA's office and they, they have those back so that by the time <sighs> I contacted them wanting copies, it was available. Wow. And then um, <laughs> also next to those transcripts, he found the unpublished memoir of Roy Gustafson. Wow. Uh, Roy had just put it all up there. And uh, later he was appointed as a judge and everything, and Mm -hmm. he left, and uh, that was all there. So I heard that uh, through a mutual friend that, um, because Ventura, when we were growing up, was kind of small, and and, uh, my friend was getting married uh, to her high school boyfriend. They were multiple marriages between them, and 
And uh, I asked if, if Bob McSorry, she thought would be there. And she said, yes. So I spent the entire reception trying to figure out which one might be Bob McSorley. <laughs> so you can get and, the uh, details you need, yeah. Yeah, so could I get a hold of that memoir? And, and I was missing part of the transcript. Could he get, you know, so anyway. Wow. Yeah, so, so wait. That was so really... are you playing Powerball this week? Because <laughs> you should. <laughs> yeah, I know. It's crazy. Wait a minute, wait a minute. So she married her high school sweetheart after she had divorced someone else? Two other divorces. It was wow. a third marriage. Yeah, I think it was her fourth marriage and Mike's third marriage. And Marilyn is in the book. Marilyn is the one in the book. Yes, Marilyn. She and lived she across married, the street. Yeah, yeah. Uh huh. Did she, did, the, it, did the went, third one or did the fourth marriage work? Oh I'm yes, very successfully. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> yeah, in fact, I mentioned them at the very last chapter when she doesn't go to swim practice because. She's out cruising Maine with her new boyfriend, Mike, and his hot right. ride. <laughs> that's something we just pass right by most people, but I stuck it in. That's, that's <laughs> awesome. I imagine there's quite a few little Easter eggs like that in the book. There there's is. One, there's one I have a question about. There's a scene where you and your friends, Marilyn, I believe, is included, and Judy, start mm -hmm. the Helpful Club. You have a lemonade stand, yeah. and you're, you're raising money to buy right. a doll for a young girl who mm -hmm. lives at the mental hospital where your mom works because she doesn't have right. her own doll. And your mom is trying to explain to you what schizophrenia is. And she says mm -hmm. kind of, you know, offhandedly, I hope I live long enough to discover why it appears in children, you know, what, what causes it in right. children. Did, did anything ever, I mean, have we figured anything out about that? Uh, they don't call it childhood schizophrenia anymore. Uh, it, it has, um, I think, bipolar and other other things but that is not a label that's ever used anymore mm. but yeah what my and what my mother also used to say is you know i hope i live to see a cure for schizophrenia including oh. adults and everything and yeah. she would say well surely if i i think i have this in the book surely if it's not in my lifetime it will be in your lifetime mm. so you know it's just it's a crippling mental illness and they still don't really they can certainly treat it much better than they did back in those days, but it still, you know, really, really impacts people's life who suffer from that, from schizophrenia and you their families. Yeah, yeah, and you speak with such compassion, and your mom has such compassion. You know, she's really yeah. an advocate for, you know, people who suffer from mental illness, and she says over and she over is. again, they're not crazy, they're mentally ill. Mm -hmm. and exactly. And I wonder about, you know, you took the time to include those parts in the book. I'm guessing it mattered to you. With having uh, Beth was appeared in, in uh, our lives at the same time as the, uh, the Duncan trial was going on, um, made me want to put that in the book. And, and because I was kind of confused about Beth's mental illness and, um, and uh, Mrs. Duncan, you know, she, my father said, well, you know, she's crazy, but, but apparently she wasn't crazy enough because she wasn't legally insane. insane. Yeah. Right. And uh, so that, that just impacted me trying to sort that out, uh, the difference between uh, this woman who truly was uh, not in touch with reality and not really able to care for herself 
and uh, then Mrs. Duncan, who was so manipulative Mm -hmm. and, uh, you know, crazy like a fox, I think my mother said at one point. My father, I don't know. Well, and, you know, she was a sociopath or maybe even a psychopath. You know, there's there's no, no doubt about that. Yes, she, yes, no doubt. She, you did a really good job of depicting her in the court scenes, the look on her face. And I wonder, it, were those things in the transcripts, you know, the, no, the, the no, demeanor of no. people? No, but they were in uh, the, uh, the newspaper. Oh, In some of dad. the newspapers. Uh, they, they put a lot more detail back then. And especially, uh, there was this terrific newspaper. It wasn't terrific in my dad's eyes, but for my purposes, <laughs> called the... Uh, uh, the Los Angeles Herald, and I, I changed the name of that newspaper in the book, that this woman reporter uh, re- reported for, and it was sort of tabloid-like. Mm. And those stories would have all kinds of information about uh, scenes in the, in, at the recesses, and um, also uh, how Mrs. Duncan was behaving Mm. in um and what she was wearing that's another thing God detailed descriptions <laughs> of of what people were wearing a lot yeah. of actually it was more than just the herald that did that a lot of them um did that um my dad had some of his articles he would he would say describe the witness and what they had on and so yeah i mean i just had so much information to work from this character you're speaking of is female reporter benny joe mm-hmm. is her name in the book yes at I, times, it, she seems so perfectly placed because it gives gives the reader an opportunity to know what your dad is thinking. So Benny Joe right. would ask your dad, well, why do you think that you're doing that? Or what's the point in doing that? Mm-hmm. And your exactly. father would have an answer. I mean, was that a, a yeah. your purpose? That was, uh-huh, that was a, what do they call a literary device? I don't know. I didn't know much about Benny, uh, Benny Joe. Her real name, I, I forget, it was a reporter. Uh, in the um, for the exam the examiner, but I did know what my father thought. I knew mm-hmm. the kinds of things that he thought during the trial, what he thought about the case, and so I used her as sort of a, a, a spoil the right word I don't know to for me to be able to get his thoughts out during the trial. And again, this is written in the um, style of uh, creative nonfiction, narrative nonfiction. Um, where you're allowed uh, to use some literary type devices to tell the story as long as you stick to the truth. Stick to the and, facts, man. <laughs> um, to stick to the facts and don't make up uh, anything. Now, whether Benny Joe said uh, some of the little things that she, you know, I, I, she didn't say those things. Those were things that I used so that my father, I could have my father saying what he believed and what he thought. But one thing you did tell us is that Benny Joe never got a byline. Right. Uh-huh. And I, I noticed that from all of the stories. Wow. There was no byline. My dad had a byline in every story he wrote for the, during that time. Yeah. And uh, she didn't have any bylines. I only knew that she worked for it, was covering um, that uh, because of uh, uh, an article my dad wrote in the for the newspaper about the various journalists that were, were covering the story. And that yeah. line about um, uh, how do you split up the work between uh, Benny Joe, B- um, Benny Joe and her, and her, um, 
uh, the other the male reporter that was there for the paper, uh, I believe he was Ed. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. My dad asked him, and he said, "Well, whenever I can, I let her do all the work." Oh my gosh! Uh, yeah. And so, and I had wow. I had Benny say that actually in the in the book, but yeah, that she did. Well, and I love the uh-huh. character you you create for her. She was fabulous. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So here's a here's a question. Take us totally off off this track. Do you play the accordion? Not anymore. <laughs> I did. I picked one up when I was probably in my thirties or forties at a at a uh, a garage sale. Uh, I was in my uh, with uh, uh, Tom went, and my husband and I were there, and he says, "Well, pick it up. You can." Play. And I picked it. I couldn't play that. I couldn't. You know, uh, yeah, that takes a lot of coordination with the bellows going in and out. But so yeah. I gave it up. Uh, gosh, when did I give it up? I, at some point. Um, Maybe eighth or ninth grade. I don't know uh, if I went that long, but no, I, I lost that that skill. <laughs> Not that I was ever very skilled at it, but I yeah, lost it. <laughs> I was telling Chad. I said, "Yeah, she picked up the accordion of all instruments." And then Chad says I to know. me, "Oh, well, there were traveling salesmen who sold accordions." And I'm like, "Yes, that's exactly it." Yeah. Well, the, yeah, the, the accordion uh, lesson salesman came to the door and that's how I got involved. But you know why I was so interested in taking the accordion is that my parents watched the Lord's Welk show. Uh, oh. And uh, you're, you probably you two aren't old enough to probably remember that. Of but course we not are. only did Lawrence Welk play the accordion once in a while, but he had an accordion, an accordion player on there called Myron Florn that I was just really taken with that playing. Loved, I loved that music that he played. <laughs> that was great. And they all did the polka too. <laughs> well, you know, you know, the definition of perfect pitch is when you throw the accordion into the trash bin and it hits the banjo. <laughs> oh, <laughs> probably. <laughs> the accordion. Yes. We have I do a, love a good polka though. I was going to say, I yes, love some I polka around Beer barrel polka is just, was my favorite. That's what I wanted to learn to play. Nice. I was determined that that's what I would learn to play. Did you ever get it? Did you get that under your fingers? Yes, I was able to do it. Not quite like Myron Florn with all those shaking oh, accordion so bellows frills. and everything. Yeah. yeah, I tried, but no, I didn't get quite to that good. <laughs> <laughs> but I still have pictures of uh, the accordion school. It was a whole accordion. It was, accordion was very popular back then. And there was actually this um, uh, Frank Umbro accordion school. And they would put us on the back of flatbed truck for the fair parade every year and we'd be sitting all of us in little chairs on that truck playing the accordion as we were pulled down the 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 street for the parade which by the way would never happen if when i look at the pictures there's nothing there's no railing there's nothing around the edges of the truck it's luckily somebody just didn't topple over with their accordion onto the street seriously yeah just in a regular chair yeah. you are a bit top heavy yeah. when you have an accordion yeah. strapped around yeah, your shoulders yeah exactly indeed right but if things were so lax back then people just didn't think about some, those kinds of things somehow most of us survived i've played a couple gigs oh. on a flatbed <laughs> Have you? Oh, yeah. you? Yeah. A couple pep band <laughs> yeah. gigs in high school. Nice. <laughs> yeah, and the probably there's no railing around it. Nope, it's it's horrifying. <laughs> oh my gosh. Talk to us about your writing process. Well, I'm a rewriter. I'm mm. big on rewriting. Whoever said that all writing is rewriting is something that I certainly um, uh, believe. Uh, so... I would start writing uh, when I started, you know, at the very beginning. 
started writing the book and I started with that chapter of my father losing his fingers and then had a, you know, thinking back to the trial. And I probably wrote about 10 chapters and then I thought, oh, no, this isn't right. So then I started all over again and I put something else in front of that first chapter about the lawnmower. And uh, then I would write, uh, you know, maybe 20 chapters or more. And I would keep going back. I, I would just keep going back to the beginning and rewriting and making changes and then um, and then continuing on so that nothing is ever said about that lawnmower now till almost at the end of the book. Mm-hmm. Isn't so, that great? I, I think yes, that's actually so, wonderful. <laughs> Yeah. And I would notice as I was writing, this is my first book. Mm. And um, even though I had always gotten compliments about my writing when I was growing up and when I was a principal, I wrote a lots of grants for the school. We got a lot of great grants on my writing style. But um, I, I didn't know how to write uh, like this with scenes and dialogue and descriptions until I wrote, went, went to UCSD, till I went to that program and then took some classes through Writers Inc. and went to the reading critiques. So as I wrote the book, I became a, a better writer. A lot of mm-hmm. writers will write one book and then their next book is a better book and then the next book, or they write art or essays. You know, I just worked on this one book. So I was really learning to be a better writer as I wrote this book. And I think that's part of the reason I kept going back because I would get to a, a part and I think, you know, this really sounds a lot better. I, I'm writing better. I better yeah. go back and fix all that other stuff. So, yeah, I, I, that's how I wrote. And we've, we've had some stream of consciousness authors on this podcast. Mm-hmm. And I have no idea how they can make that happen. Yeah. Yeah. Like they just right. front to back. And they're done. On to the next one. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. No, I, 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 I couldn't do that with this one. You know, and because I'm a big reader and I read some really good authors. I, I mentioned that in the end of the book that I really like true crime and this story affected that interest. But I also read all kinds of other other books. And so I feel like I know a well-written good book when when I see one and as I kept writing, you know, I didn't see that in mine yet. I just had to keep making things better and making like, you know, increasing the tension and having to do away with some of the uh, things that I love, but maybe didn't really um, help the, the, the book move along. And, and so I was learning and improving as I went. Well, I'm glad you stuck with it. Yeah. I like I like the writing process. I like just working on my own. After all of those years as a school principal, where I used to say you're like an aircraft uh, or a, a, a an air, uh, the controller air, air, airline controller air traffic controller yeah. air traffic controller. I used to feel <laughs> that way sometimes. You know, at a research, they'd be or people be lining up at my door with various problems, and and I love the solitariness of of just mm. writing in uh, in my office. It's it's almost meditative, it isn't it? Yeah, mm-hmm. and boy, when you get the uh, somehow that there was some chapters once I wrote, I didn't have to rewrite those much. They, it was just like I was just, <laughs> uh huh. And yeah. the last chapter of that book, uh, "Life Goes On," you know, I knew that that's how I wanted to end the book from mm. very early on, mm. and I would just kind of throw little ideas in this folder. 
when I wrote that chapter, I really did just write it straight through. It just seemed to just come off my tips of my fingers as I was typing. Nice. I'm, but, but I'm guessing others been, I just struggled. You struggled with. Well, I was going to say other, other chapters. I really struggled. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's a. I mean, there's a lot to this book and so much research. But I was going to say that you know that that chapter that just as you say just like came out no problem. My guess is that you did a lot of thinking about that chapter before you actually put it to paper. Right. Yes. Yeah. Right. And I, I do. And and I would probably wrote three or four hours uh, most days. Mm. Um, yeah. And I would I would write in the afternoon. I I would go to the gym in the morning. And then I would write in the afternoon, and then uh, maybe I would go out for a walk. And I live in um, you know the beach. I live in Mission Beach, and I would, uh, especially like low tides, go out and walk I- in the afternoon, and and just think about what I had written. And I usually had my phone with me, and if I you know got some idea, I would uh, you know record that on my phone. Other days I wrote, I, I walked on the boardwalk, but walking and thinking about what I had written and then uh, coming back and making a few notes and I was ready to go the next day. Nice. Can you talk about your process to getting published, your journey to getting published, I should say? Yes. Yeah, I would like to talk about that because um, obviously anybody who reads the uh, book and does the math knows that I'm a, a, a woman of a certain age and I didn't really start seriously writing until quite late in life. And I would go to writers conferences and um, I would, uh, you know, hear people talk, going to uh, little sessions about getting published. And I learned early on that possibly publishers were not all that interested in signing up uh, older writers and that so agents not so either. Uh, because they wanted to get uh, authors that would write a number of books. That in the publishing business, if your first book is good, you develop a little bit of a fan base, and then your second book, those fans come, readers come back, and you maybe get more. So you build on your success. And if you were an older author, well, you know, there was a little worry if maybe you wouldn't be around to do that if you get my drift. <laughs> so I had heard that maybe that there was this prejudice against this. Um, I also knew that I had a mixed genre. Uh, I think that that's more acceptable now, but uh, early on when I was, uh, you know, beginning writing that uh, this book that uh, publishers didn't like uh, mixed genre. They, they wanted to uh, be able to, sell you know if you were a science fiction fan they want to be able to you know uh market the book to those fans and um so and that it, it, it i'll get to it when i get to pass the agent but that did turn to be out to be a little bit of a problem um the other thing that we've talked about this is a long book and that um this my first book for a first time author need to be maybe only 250 pages uh you know half of what I eventually wrote and um, seems like that there was something else that was an issue but you know what every once in a while somebody would say but you know you can break all those rules if you really write a good book that's so right. I thought okay well I'm going to concentrate <laughs> on trying to just write a really good book yeah. that uh, people would want to read and I even felt like I had a really good story it was just a matter of 
how could I get it down on paper uh, that would make a book that people would want to read? So I kept writing and writing. And um, I have a, a couple of sons. And uh, one of them is also uh, uh, an aspiring writer. And he said, you know, Mom, they're having uh, the Santa Barbara Writers Conference, uh, and you should take your book. It's, it's, almost, it's, it's practically done. And this whole story started in Santa Barbara. That would be a good place for you to go. And so yeah, I... Um, Very smart. Yeah. yeah. And so we went, and I did one of what they call advanced readings, where you uh, turn in 10 pages and... Uh, I did it with an agent, uh, and then they you meet with them at the conference, and they give you feedback. If they like your uh, ten pages, they may ask you to send fifty more, and you know then it goes for there. And the idea is hopefully you might get it, uh, an agent. I I had done that before, and I had sent in some um, uh, I'd gotten some feedback from agents, but I didn't actually know anybody who had gotten an actual agent uh, to sign a, an agent agreement to represent their book. So anyway, when I sat down with uh, Charlotte Gousset from the Charlotte Gousset Literary Agency, um, she we had a few pleasantries and she said, oh, and I, I just really love your writing and everything and I want you to send my enti- send me your entire manuscript. Wow. And so the top of my head almost blew off with <laughs> confetti, bet. you know, like coming out. <laughs> and uh, so I said, oh, uh, okay. And uh, so uh, she said, um, I said, well, I, I've got to finish the epilogue or, you know, what, whatever. She says, well, that's okay. Uh, I'm going uh, to Greece uh, for the whole, this is in June, the whole month of August. So you don't need to send it to me until uh, the fall. And nice. I said, great. So I'm in. I went home and I just started working on that and, and getting it all together. So I, I sent it to Charlotte and I, I mentioned this. She read it and she got back to me after uh, a while. It was a, more than maybe two months to hear back. And she said, you know, I really like this in a lot of ways, but I'm just up in the air. And I think I'm going to have to take a pass. Mm. Uh, But she said, if you would be willing, and she said, I really believe that the family chapters start to uh, slow down the crime chapters. And if you would be willing to rewrite that, if you submit it to me again, I'll take another look. Wow. So I did. Yeah. I thought, shoot, I've got somebody interested here. She right. says she loves the story and everything. I'm not going to, I feel like that this was so fortunate that I had somebody who read the whole thing and, and, and liked it. I, I just went ahead and I said, I would do that. So I uh, spent a lot of time. I got um, an editor, uh, a local editor, Mark Clements again, uh, who I felt like he knew the book so well and to help me decide what I could uh, cut out. So he made a lot of suggestions and I also found places that I wanted to cut. And I could I could really see at that point that the pace is important. Yeah. And she wanted me to pick up the pace. And so once I kind of really got that concept, I was able to make those changes. So I uh, sent it back to Charlotte and uh, another couple of months went by and, uh, she uh, arranged for us to have a, a Zoom call, and she said that she would like to uh, uh, me to sign with her uh, if I was interested. <laughs> I said, right, "Oh right. yeah, yeah." You're like, Let I'm me still think about that. <laughs> <laughs> I'll get and back so to you. <laughs> then we spent uh, we spent quite a bit of time uh, coming up with a book proposal because it is 
uh, nonfiction. At first she thought maybe, because uh, memoirs, a lot of memoirs don't have to have book proposals, but you know, uh, I think the second or third editor that she sent it to at the, at the publisher said, you know, I really want to have a, a, a proposal for this. So we worked on that for a couple of months and then she um we started she started pitching it again we had to come up with a pitch and you know i I did a whole lot of things once i got this agent i thought you know you'd get an agent and then that'd be it but no there was a lot of work that i still Mm. needed to do and so the mixed genre seemed to be a little bit of a problem Mm. uh charlotte is a very experienced agent she has uh represents a lot of different books um, she's uh, represented some that have uh, one in particular that made the long list for nonfiction in uh, for the um, the National Book Award. So you know, and she she really knows these editors, and she would always send me uh, the emails that they had sent back with the rejection so that I could see, and I could tell that there was a personal relationship with these people. So mm-hmm. as time went on, a few people said, "Well, maybe you should look for somebody else," and I said, "Uh." Uh-uh. You know, no this way. lady really yeah. seems to know people here. And uh, so it was a problem with, I remember more than one publisher said, you know, I do true crime, but I really wouldn't know how to market this book because it's not strictly true crime. Mm-hmm. And so, Jennifer, here's where you come in. Um, <laughs> I'm sitting around at this point, not having much to do. And I had always been told at these writers conferences that I needed to have a web a site. And so I didn't exactly know what I was to, I always just think, well, I wouldn't know what to put on a website. I haven't published anything yet, but I managed to get some ideas and everything. So I uh, cont- um, contacted Monkey Seed Media and uh, I had, uh, I wanted to put together a website that would, I would be able to have pictures and to, you know, tell the story a little more than was in the book proposal and um, a lot of things on that. And um, I know I, I, maybe not for you personally, but um, the first publisher that had access to my website is the one who offered me uh, the book contract. Wow. Pegasus Books. So it did make a difference. It did make it. I, well, I've never asked that editor well, because it was the website. But, you know, <laughs> I think people could see that story uh, pictured there better. I had yeah. all those pictures and I had an opportunity to write this in my own way. And uh, because early on going to those uh, writers conferences, when I would go to the parts about, oh, you need a social media presence and you need to have a website, I would just sort of, you know, go over the top of my head because I couldn't think what to do about that. I just kept writing. But once I was done writing and Charlotte was pitching, then I thought, okay, now I need to have a website. And now it's been very helpful for marketing I, I hear from readers uh, from all over the place. Just got another one today. They send me emails through that website, to, mm. and it's very, very um, gratifying for people <laughs> that people who send these messages to me that how yeah. much the book meant to them. That's wonderful. So that's wonderful. What a that great was story. my and yeah. And once I did get that publisher uh, signed the uh, the book contract. Nobody said word one about the book being too long. Nobody mm-hmm. said anything about me being too old. <laughs> um, no, nobody, you know, so I thought, and, and, I, and I was still so worried that maybe the book was a little long. Um, and I thought, well, maybe somebody's going to come to their senses there and I'm going to get this email that says, hold it, hold it. 
you know, we didn't realize. <laughs> it was so but, long. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. But no, nobody did. And, you know, I said this, uh, I've heard this from many, many people. It's such a fast read that people just, just don't notice. It never drags. Yeah. And when I first got the book in the mail, I was like, oh, boy, <laughs> this is a yeah, long I'm, book. You know, um, uh -huh. this is Dostoy. <laughs> War and peace. Yeah. Right. Like, well, it's five. What is it? It's 518. I think it's 518 pages or something. And books are getting longer. They you, are. You, they you are. do yeah. discover that, that books are uh, getting longer. And so it's not such an issue anymore. But yeah, it is a fast read. Well, I just honestly, the more I got into it, the, the less I wanted to put it down. And it, it was a fast read. It was a pleasurable read. I mean, for all of our listeners, this is a fantastic book. It's a fantastic book for people who love memoir, who love humor, for those who love true crime. There, I never, ever felt like, oh, this is too much. You know, there, there's the details when they find the body. And that's hard to read. It really is. You know, it's like, it's, it's so sad what happened to this young woman. But but it's so compelling because this character, this Elizabeth Duncan, who's on trial here, her her character is just out of this world. And her I think this story yeah. needed to be told for a number of reasons, but I'm glad you stuck with it. I'm glad I got to be the, you know, Monkey See Media and Chad and I got to be part of the process. So and this yeah, has been she a real definitely. <laughs> thank you. This has been a real pleasure just talking to you about it. We're about to the end of our hour, I have to let you go, even though I know I have a million more questions I wanted to ask. But my last question is this. What's next? What can we expect from Deborah Holt Larkin next? Well, uh, I, I won't be writing a true crime, um, uh, another true crime story because, oh, that was the other thing. I didn't really have a platform to write a true crime story. It's usually a detective or a journalist that covered the case. Mm -hmm. um, and I just don't have the kind of information that I had to be able to write this book. So I plan to go back to um, fiction. Mm -hmm. And to what my original plan was when I um, wanted to be a writer, which was that I would write mysteries, um, mm -hmm. possibly, you know, cozy mysteries with a, an amateur detective. I can and, totally uh, see it. Yeah, that's, that's what I plan to do. I almost want to. I have a plot. Slim. Yeah, exactly. I wanted to be <laughs> <Yeah>. 10. <laughs> I, I have a, probably not, but I have a, a plot in mind. But uh, yeah, when I, uh, I when I was going to write this cozy mystery at the beginning, try to turn the Duncan case into that, which I don't, it's not really a cozy, but um, it will be uh, set on a, a, a rural school campus uh, with the, the amateur detective being uh, probably... Uh, the principal or teacher at that school. And, and I have right, well, uh, you know. quite the plot for that one. Yeah. Awesome. Well, I, for one, will be reading it. So okay. get her done. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> awesome. Thank you again. Sooner Debbie. than nine years. Yeah. You, you yeah. Please. Oh yeah. I know. I haven't got nine years left for right now. I think, but yes, I, I want to. And, and as soon as things settle down with, with this current book, cause I do a lot of things to, um, you know, continue to market my book. But as soon as I uh, am finished with this, I will definitely be writing. I have a folder that I keep putting all these ideas into. Nice, nice. Well, I guess we'll, we'll say goodbye. Debbie, thank yeah. you. Thank you so much for joining us today. Well, and thank you so much for having me. I've enjoyed talking. 
You can learn more about Deborah Holt Larkin at DebraLarkin.com. There you can join her mailing list, check out some of the photographs, see more of her, her story, and follow her on social. This has been another episode of The Premise. Follow us at Pod Premise on Twitter and go to thepremisepod.com to subscribe. And be sure to rate us wherever you get your podcasts. Until next week, thanks for listening. Goodbye. Goodbye. <laughs> Goodbye. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to The Premise, the official podcast of the San Diego Writers' Festival. Bye.